Thank you for that reading of God's Word. Tomorrow is Ash Wednesday, uh, as Legron mentioned, uh, marking the first day of Lent, which means today is Shrove Tuesday. Uh, trust me, Shrove is not the Latin word for fat. <clears throat> shrove is not the Latin word for pancakes. Uh, shrove is derived from the actual English word shrive, which means absolution, and it was about the preparation of the church before they entered into the holy season of Lent. The purpose of the whole church year is to catechize us collectively as the whole church around the world and back through time as we together uh, reflect and think about what it means to be part of this great redemptive work of God in the world. It forces us to not cherry-pick the gospel, but to walk through all of it. That's a great means of grace for us. And although we're not dedicating a, a, a sermon to this theme, certainly the, the church year is uh, yet another means of grace for us as we corporately reenact the great themes of God's redemption in the world. Uh, it begins with uh, God the Father, who speaks to us through the prophets, and of course the whole older covenant awaiting the coming of the Messiah, we call that Advent. Uh, the birth of Jesus, the incarnation, God the Son in Christmas and Christmas tide his public ministry and epiphany, his passion Lent, his resurrection Easter, his ascension on Ascension Sunday, uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost where the third person of the Trinity empowers his church. And so we as a community are now about to step into this 40-day period, not counting Sundays, that we call Lent between now and Easter. Now each season of the year comes with its own kind of unofficial liturgical symbols and signs that we can't help but notice if you are in churches that have any kind of symbolism at all. Uh, for example, the Advent wreath is a common sight in churches, and if you see the four candles and the Christ candle and each lit, different aspects of preparation. If you walk into a church and you see Advent candle, you know it must be Advent. If you go into a church and you see a Christmas tree or a Christmas tree, uh, or better yet, a manger seen up front like with straw scattered about, you know it's Christmas time. Uh, this is the way the church year is communicated to us. Uh, if you think about um, particularly the Epiphany, Epiphany in many ways is the most neglected season of the year, the one that we're just completing. Uh, the word Epiphany means manifestation and refers to the glorious light of revelation which comes and revealed through Christ's public ministry from his baptism to the transfiguration. The central symbol of Epiphany is the wise men coming from the ends of the earth. But Christmas stole it. And because Christmas swallowed that symbol up, Epiphany sometimes kind of hangs out there for many Christians. Lent, of course, the symbol, central symbol is the cross. And uh, you often see passion plays and uh, of course, the central symbol of Easter is the empty tomb, and you have sunrise services. All these are lived-out signs that where the church tells itself about where they are in the church year. The central symbol of Pentecost is a descending dove, or perhaps fire. I, you know, our church always had passion plays. We had Christmas uh, nativity plays, and I suggested one time to the um, church committee that, that did these things that we should put on a Pentecost play. And I had this great idea of you know, like fire, fire, fire falling down, but the, um, the people that were in charge of like the building safety codes, like 
kind of put an end to it, but it's a great idea. Our, uh, our Asbury hymnal, one-third of it is dedicated to hymns written for each of the seasons of the church year, and so even our hymnology and worship is often framed around the church year. Now this morning as we stand at the threshold of Lent, I want to reflect a bit more on some of the symbols like the cross, the towel and basin, the broken bread, which is a clear symbol of this season which we're about to mark on as a means of grace. And it's here that Wesley helps us in an enormous way in our understanding of the means of grace. Like most of Reformation Reformation theology, Wesley uh, does not, you know, invent things. He simply takes so much of what came to him from the 16th century and he deepens it and expands it to embrace a more expansive and fully biblically integrated vision. So the idea of the means of grace uh, did not originate with John Wesley. Means of grace is a very ancient term in the church. It uh, certainly is in the Roman Catholic tradition, Lutheran tradition, and Wesley would have certainly been exposed to it extensively in the Puritan tradition in the 16th century. But what Wesley does, like he does with so many things, he largens the frame of the means of grace to distinguish what he calls works of piety and works of mercy. Now, works of piety, which is a subset of the means of grace, for Wesley refers to all the things that we've been exploring during this season so far. Prayer, uh, reading scripture, baptism, receiving the Eucharist, and so forth. It's all the ways God forms us and conforms us to his image. And most of us, uh, if you were to just like stop and talk to us, I think most of by default, when someone says means of grace, we think about what Wesley called works of piety, which is just part of the means of grace. And this morning I want to point out that works of piety represent only half, half of a Wesleyan understanding of the means of grace. We talk a lot in Asbury about the kind of central contribution of of our movement on sanctification. We often call that the second half of the gospel and how we are resisting the idea that the whole of salvation is reduced to justification, the first half of the gospel. What about the second half of the gospel? So you have justification and sanctification. In the same way, we should talk about the first half and the second half of the means of grace. And what I want to argue is that Wesley, one of the great gifts of Wesley, is to bring to us the second half of the means of grace, known as the works of mercy. Now for Wesley, this would include all the ways the means of grace bring us in contact with a broken world. This would include, for Wesley, visiting the sick, going to prisons, feeding the hungry, fighting for justice, racial reconciliation, to name a few. This might say is really the missional side of the means of grace. The first half of the means of grace corresponds to loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is loving your neighbor as yourself. These are meant to be together. And the works of mercy are no more ancillary to the life of the Christian than sanctification is ancillary to the full vision of salvation. This is at the heart of our identity. The means of grace includes both works of piety and works of mercy. 
Now, Wesley's uh, profound insight really blasts away at so much of the modern-day tension between evangelism and social action, those kind of tensions which are often percolate throughout our movement. Historically, Christians have been deeply involved in the abolition movement, child labor laws, women's suffrage, civil rights, etc. So many examples of this throughout the history of the church. Uh, Christians building countless hospitals, schools, orphanages, and on and on and on to alleviate human suffering. Ministries like the Red Cross, Alcoholics Anonymous, Bread for the World, World Relief, World Vision, Samaritan's Purse, International Justice Missions, and tens of thousands of others are been founded by Christians because of their heart for the poor and the needy. Brian Stevenson, the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, now in the film Just Mercy, has said repeatedly that it is his faith which drives him in all that he does. In fact, Christian churches, by a long shot, provide more money as well as more human labor toward the cause of the poor and needy than any other non-governmental institution in the world. We do not accept the narrative that we are only interested in the sweet by and by or some truncated version of Christianity which reduces the gospel to the privatized faith in our hearts. And so what's happened in our day, because we have put evangelism and social action in tension, this happened mostly because of the late 19th, early 20th century, would turn social action to the social gospel and reduce the need for evangelism, conversion, etc. And we rightly resisted that. And we also have had our own challenges with identifying structural evils, not just the problem of sin right in front of you. But the deeper challenge for us has been trying to put these in two separate spheres. Once you have in two spheres, you spend a lot of energy determining what is the relationship between the two spheres. I've read a lot of stuff on this, and I found that generally evangelicals particularly see social action perhaps as a bridge to evangelism. Others try to see it as like a consequence of evangelism. Others try to see it as some kind of complementary partners, one with the other. In this this world, evangelism is always viewed as a narrow kind of presentation of the gospel message, and social action is a larger supporting role in bearing witness to the gospel, or sometimes a tool, a social action is a tool to later present the gospel in some ways. Uh, other times evangelism is kind of a, like, almost like a stealth evangelism. If we do social actions, a stealth evangelism uh, that has no lasting merit unless it culminates in evangelism. All of that, we have to kind of delete those files and re-listen to Wesley's vision, which I think is a recovery of biblical Christianity. Wesley understands the means of grace captures the great theological point, you cannot love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength unless you're also loving your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was asked for one great commandment and he gave us two. Because what God has joined together, let us not separate. This is where we finally will come eventually in the 12th part of this series. It does have an end. This is part 8. But the last part is part 12 on love as the crown of all the means of grace. To be made perfect in love is to learn to seamlessly love God and love your neighbor 
through the redirected heart. And that is the truest sign and seal of sanctification. We see this all through Wesley's writings. I love one of his letters to Miss J.C. March in 1775. She, asked, she had asked apparently, how could she dedicate her life to God? What would you say if someone said to you, how can I better dedicate my life to God? I said, well, go to chapel. Have time, attend the Eucharist. All those things are fine. But Wesley doesn't say that. He says, you want to know how to dedicate your life to God? I will tell you how. And I'm quoting Wesley here. Go and see the poor and sick in their own poor little hovels. Take up your cross and bear it out into the world. In Wesley's uh, sermon on, on visiting the sick, we find that Wesley understands the sick not just as those that are physically sick, but the whole spectrum of brokenness in the world, the sickness of the world that's disconnected from the life of God. It's amazing. And then, of course, his multiple expression, exposition of our text today, Matthew 25. Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger needing clothes or sick or in prison? Did I help you? It's here that we hear those words of Jesus to the righteous, he says. As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. Isn't that amazing? In those chilling words to the wicked, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do it for me. When Wesley insisted that faith must be operationalized, he was restoring biblical Christianity. Let's not miss the power of Matthew 25. Brothers and sisters, it is Jesus who stands at our door as the poor. It is Jesus who stands before us hungry. It is Jesus who weeps as the immigrant at our borders. It is Jesus who is asleep in homeless shelters. It is Jesus who is languishing on death row. It is Jesus who stands cold and poorly clothed in our streets. Creation itself groans with pollution, with the groans of Jesus over his creation. And Wesley would tell us, the gospel is sacramental and social. It is personal and corporate. It is conversion and kingdom. It is heart and hands. It's becoming a Christian and being a Christian. It's proclamation and action. It's creation and it's new creation. Amen? Wesley lived in this tension his whole life between Anglican legalism and kind of the pietistic quietism. So Wesley was constantly telling the legalist, you are saved, justified by faith alone. But he's also telling the quietist, we must be engaged in good works. This is the great synthesis, which is so much a part of our movement. So Wesley sees us as we are embodying the means of grace, as we pour ourselves out to a broken world, we ourselves are being shaped and formed by that. We do not accept the modern distinction between the poor and the deserving poor. For this has all too often been used as an excuse for passivity in the face of a world in need. Christ even meets them through our lives with people who are where they are because of decisions of their own making. This is why the Bible says, while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the lead for us. 
Now, of course, our strategies sometimes have to be different for different situations, but we should never, never doubt God has called us to give ourselves to the world. At the heart of the Wesleyan movement has been a rightful resistance to a truncated gospel which reduces the whole gospel to a transactional prayer like an insurance policy, which once we have dotted the, signed the dotted line, we go back to the world we had, whether wealthy or poor, successful or suffering, as if the gospel is only about the life to come. And once our ticket is punched, all else remains the same. We should never, never diminish for one minute our commitment to evangelism. My point, though, is this, this evangelism is not just about believing good news. It's about embodying good news through our lives and our witness. Paul was just as committed to planting churches in the whole Mediterranean basin as he was in raising money for the poor caught on the wrong end of the Jerusalem famine. This is why Wesley is preaching salvation by grace through faith to miners and bricklayers and also opposing slavery in his famous letter to Wilberforce. And so I call, and I've, I've asked our formation team here at Asbury to help this community to b- become more engaged and find ways to live out works of mercy through our community even more than we are. We sponsored several refugee families. Let's do it again. Right here in Lexington, we have the Blackburn Correctional Complex, which has inmates needing to do community service. We need, uh, we have, they need academic mentors who need, people who need the help taking the GED. There are people who want spiritual counseling. Others need help with substance abuse. They have a six-month program called Inside Out Dads, helping incarcerated fathers know how to be good fathers to their kids on the outside and then how they can help them when they're released. They need help in learning how to apply for jobs, how to manage their anger, how to develop construction skills, how to develop skills that they don't even know they have. Now, some of these would only be appropriate for our counseling students, maybe our senior counseling students, but many are open to all of our students. We have a community right here in Highbridge which is suffering with opioid addictions. Kentucky is one of the highest, I think the second high, if you want to call it highest, not only rate of uh, opioid addiction, but also of grandparents caring for grandchildren because of their children's being incarcerated or under opioid addiction. There are grandparents right here in Highbridge, just a few miles down the road here, who are unable to pay their own medical bills, get the medication they need because they're caring for grandchildren. Do we hear the cries of grandmothers right here in Highbridge, right in our midst? And I wanted to say a word of commendation to you, our students. I see our students all over the place doing these kind of works of mercy, and I want to commend you for it. And I even more see it. I I go all over the country seeing our graduates And your future selves are out there, but your past embodiments are all over the world embodying this in so many wonderful and beautiful ways. And I thank God for that. I think it represents, reflects who we are. And it's here that we turn to our other text, these words, this is my body given for you. We've underheard those words. If you listen to how Paul addresses it in Corinthians. We've underheard those words if it's simply the words about Jesus conveying his 
death application of atonement into our personal lives. This is actually a a phrase that defines the very incarnation itself. A body you have prepared for me has huge implications of what we do in the world. This is Paul's whole point. Don't show up at the table if you've got issues out there. Get it right out there. See the consistency between your life out in the world and your life before the table. God has given himself completely and wholly to us. The incarnation, the cross, declared God's own self-donation to his creation. We should never shy away during this season we're about to walk into the bloody, messy self-sacrifice of God the Son for a broken world. It's more than an act which enables our justification before God. It's also a summons for us to participate with Jesus, the friend of sinners, the man of sorrows, in his redemptive work to reconcile the world to himself. This is my body broken for you becomes our own sacramental presence in the world, the bread of Jesus to a hungry world. Our acts of daily mercy become acts of our own self-donation unto a broken world. That's why Paul says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Our most spiritual act of worship is tied to offering our bodies as living sacrifices. I love that uh, a comment Tish Warren humorously makes. She saw a sign on the wall of a monastic community. It reads like this. Everyone wants a revolution. No one wants to do the dishes. N.T. Wright once commented that at the Last Supper, Jesus did not give his disciples a theory of the atonement, but a deed to be acted out in tangible, visible signs. The gospel summons us out into the real, nitty-gritty, challenging world of pain. This calls us not to privatize our faith with this truncated gospel, to actually walk into the world every day as the church, the embodied presence of the new creation breaking into the present order. We're all indebted to the Eastern Orthodox Christians for their emphasis on the missional side of the sacraments. As Protestants, we tend to falsely dichotomize word and sacrament. You know, the words are public voice to the world. The sacrament is something internal for appropriating grace in our lives. But this is not what we see here. The Eucharist is part of what transforms us into bread for a hungry and needy world. The celebration of the Eucharist is a sign of the new creation breaking into this creation until the end that all of creation is healed through the amazing reconciling work of God through his people. We spend so much time making our worship services relevant for the world and for culture, we have forgotten to make ourselves relevant to the world through our own embodied transformation into the likeness of Christ. That's the greatest need we have. Christians have sometimes inadvertently portrayed salvation as escape from time, rendering time meaningless when the very core of the gospel is God stepping into time. We are to be in the very embodiment of the seventh day, which is the never-ending day of the new creation dawning upon the darkness of this world. 
So also, close on this point, all the works, and this is in Wesley's genius, all the works of piety are inextricably linked to works of mercy. The Eucharist, as we've seen, is not merely a means of grace where our sins are forgiven, a work of piety, and it is that, but it's also our being transformed as bread for a lost world. That is a work of mercy. Reading Scripture is more than just shaping us spiritually. That is a work of piety. It's also our proclamation to a lost world who needs to hear the good news of the gospel. Prayer is not merely to calm our lives and form us. That's a work of piety. It's through prayer that we wage war on behalf of a lost world and intercede for a world that's broken. It becomes our great tool of mercy to the world. All the works of piety have a corresponding second half of the means of grace in a work of mercy. And so they are not two things, but one thing, which we call together the means of grace. And so as we step into this season of Lent, let it be a time for us of deep reflection. Let it be a time for us to think about how God can form us spiritually that we might be a sacramental life in the world. Can we see when we come to the table, when we come to the word of God, come to prayer, that Lent also is a Christ beckoning us to join him into a world of pain, to join him into a world of suffering, a world of disenfranchisement, a world where people are desperate for the good news of the gospel. Because there, in the pain of the world, in the brokenness of the world, we see the face of God. I'll close with a quote from that great mystic, that 16th century Spanish mystic, St. Teresa of Avila, great theologian, by the way, the first woman uh, doctor of the church, where she said these words, Christ has no body on earth but yours, no hands but yours, no feet but yours, Yours are the eyes through which Christ's compassion for the world is to look out. Yours are the feet through which he is to go about doing good. And yours are the hands through which he blesses the world. Thanks be to God. We're going to close with this hymn, uh, Lord, Whose Love and Humble Service. It's a beautiful hymn which captures this theme. And I want to just call you... uh, today as we sing this closing hymn. If God's calling you, say, Lord, I want to better embody the second half of the means of grace. I want to do a better job. Help me to embody the acts of mercy. And please come forward and pray during this time as we sing, Lord, whose love and humble service.